Good morning. Let's pray just to ask the Lord's help to understand his word. Father, we ask your help this morning that you would open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your word. And Lord, the, the wonderful thing or the wonderful person that we wish to see is your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. May we forget all the distractions. Uh, may we forget the preacher, Lord. May we forget everyone but our Lord Jesus. May he reign supreme in our sight as we study his word. And Lord, as we come particularly to the, the book of Ruth, as we see Boaz, who is a, a kinsman redeemer to his family, uh, may, may through him, may we see our kinsman redeemer, our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who laid down his life to purchase our redemption. May, may we see him and love him more and trust him more as a result of what we discover in your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, please turn to the book of Ruth. We'll be finishing chapter 3 today, and we're looking at the last five verses, verses 14 through 18. But just to give us a running start into that passage, I'm going to back up to chapter 3, verse 6, where we see Ruth come in the evening to have a private conversation with Boaz. And she's following her mother-in-law's instructions as to what to do. So I'll start reading in Ruth 3, verse 6. So she, Ruth, went down to the threshing floor and did according to all her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. It happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward, and behold, a woman was lying at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative, or a kinsman redeemer. Then he said, May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask. For all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. Now it is true, I am a kinsman redeemer. However, there is a redeemer closer than I. Remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good. Let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you, as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Again he said, Give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. So she held it, and he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did it go, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her. She said, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, Do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then she said, Wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he has settled it today. I wanted to ask you if you have ever had an obligation or a concern that was so strong, so pressing, that you felt that you could not rest 
You could not give yourself a moment's peace until you had fulfilled that obligation or you had resolved whatever it was that was concerning you. I'm sure we've all had moments like that, but in thinking about that question, I thought about one of my grandfather's war stories when he was in World War II. And in particular, I thought about the story that he told about when he was headed out to the front lines. When he and his men were approaching the front, he spoke of how the German forces began shelling their position. And like everybody else, my grandpa took cover in a hole somewhere. And as he did so, he noticed some other men coming toward him. And those men were Americans, and they were headed back from the front lines. So as you went up to the front lines, other folks, other men were coming off of the front lines. And that was because, according to my grandpa, you were not left on the front lines indefinitely because you would lose your mind because of the constant fear, the constant danger that you were exposed to. And these men that he saw coming off of the front lines had apparently stayed on the front to the point of having lost their wits because as the shells were dropping all around them, they were not even attempting to take cover. They were so dazed and confused, they were just walking back like nothing was happening. So my grandpa, driven by a sense of his obligation to these fellow Americans, got out of his hole, climbed into a jeep, and drove out in the midst of all of these falling artillery rounds and loaded those men into his jeep in order to deliver them from danger. He felt that he could not sit there in his hole safe while those men, those fellow Americans, were in danger. He was obligated to them, and he could not rest until he had met their need. And certainly that's an extreme example of feeling obligated to the point that you cannot rest until you have remedied the situation. But we've seen a similar thing, this situation where there's an obligation and there is someone positioned to meet that obligation. We see that in the book of Ruth. And last week, when we went through the middle portion of chapter 3, we saw Ruth, in accordance with her mother-in-law's plan, Naomi, We saw her come to Boaz during the night in order to ask this man to marry her. And Ruth asked Boaz to marry her in such a way as to remind him of the destitute, perilous situation she was in. Remember how she uncovered his feet to the cold night air and had then asked him, as he covered his feet back up, to cover her, she who was exposed to danger. And the reason she gave for why Boaz should marry her was because he was a kinsman redeemer. That is, he was a relative who had an obligation placed upon him by God, by the law of God, to redeem or to deliver family members who were in need. And in response to that plea from Ruth, Boaz pledged himself to resolve the matter of her redemption. He said, everything you say, I will do. He committed himself to do everything that she asked. But last week we saw that there was a slight complication. There was a man 
who was more closely related to Ruth and Naomi than he was. And so the responsibility and the right to redeem Ruth rested on this other man first before it could fall to him. So before Boaz could personally act on Ruth's behalf, he needed to determine whether or not this other man would step up to redeem Ruth. And, and Boaz promised that night to Ruth that he would act to resolve this situation. Now, after Boaz made that commitment to Ruth, we are left asking, what is he going to do? What is Boaz going to do? Is he going to follow through on that commitment that he made to Ruth, or is he going to procrastinate? Is he going to say, well, let me get the rest of this grain in, and then, then I'll see if I can help you out? Would he only act when it was convenient for him, or would he refuse to give himself rest until he had seen Ruth rescued from her difficult situation? In verses 14 to 15, we begin to see what Boaz will do. And we see in these first two verses, Ruth be blessed by Boaz's immediate action. He doesn't wait around. He moves immediately to resolve her situation. Let's look at verse 14. So she, Ruth, lay at Boaz's feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. In keeping with Boaz's instruction from verse 13, when he said, stay here tonight, Ruth slept at Boaz's feet until early morning. And it's clear that nothing immoral took place. And while it was still dark, too dark to make out anyone's faces, she got up to leave. And Boaz gives the instruction in verse 14, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And it's not clear if he was saying that to Ruth or if he was saying that maybe to a servant who became aware of Ruth's presence, but his intention is clear. He didn't want anybody to know she had come because what would they think? They would think the worst. They would misinterpret what had taken place. Boaz did not want that rumor mill to start up. If that word got out about what had happened, people would think the worst, and Ruth would be shamed, Boaz would have his honor sullied, and worst of all, the conversation that he's going to go have with this other redeemer would be complicated, because if that guy thought that Ruth was unfaithful, and that her and Boaz did something wrong, he's probably not going to be willing to redeem Ruth. So he didn't want anybody to know that Ruth had come. Verse 15, again, he said, give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. So she held it and he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. So before Ruth heads out back to Naomi, Boaz gives her a parting gift. And he has her hold her cloak out as he measures in six measures of barley grain. And we're not told the unit of measurement, so we don't know how much grain he gave her. But judging from how Ruth and Naomi talk about it later, it seems like it was a pretty generous helping of barley grain. At the end of verse 15, after Boaz gives her this gift, 
we are told that someone went back to the city of Bethlehem. And I say someone because our English Bible translations are somewhat divided on how exactly to translate this. The New International Version, the New Living Translation, the New English Translation, and the New Revised Standard Version, they all translate that last phrase as he went into the city, not she, he went into the city. On the other hand, the English Standard Version, the King James Version, the New American Standard Bible, and the Christian Standard Bible all translate it as she went into the city, Ruth went into the city. And in fact, back in the year 1611, which was when the King James Version first began to be printed and dispensed to people who wanted it, there were two editions that came out. And one edition translated this verse as he went into the city, and another edition translated it as she went into the city. And so those two different editions of the King James became known as the He Bible and the She Bible, all because of this one little word and this one little verse. Eventually, the King James stuck with She over He. And the difference between your various translations is due to the difference between the wording of some Hebrew manuscripts. Just to get a little nerdy, the Masoretic text, which is a Hebrew manuscript, had he went into the city. And some later medieval Hebrew manuscripts said she went into the city. So when a Bible translator sees these differences, he has to decide which one of these did the original author originally write? Because they're trying to get the word of God right. They're trying to pass on to us what God himself breathed out through the human author onto the pages. So that's where you get this difference coming. These translators had to decide which one was more original. And most of the commentators I read believe that he went into the city as the original reading rather than she went into the city. Now, why am I making a big deal about this? Seems very inconsequential. Well, if it is indeed the case that we are being told that Boaz went into the city after giving Ruth the barley grain, then the narrator is communicating to us that Boaz acted immediately. He didn't waste any time to begin resolving the situation of Ruth needing to be redeemed. He got up before it was light out, gave Ruth this gift of grain, and immediately headed into the city to get this straightened out. And this kind of immediate action is what Boaz said he would do in verse 13. Look at verse 13. He said to Ruth, Remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good, let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives. He says, when morning comes. When morning comes, he was going to act for Ruth's redemption. So whether or not verse 15 says he went into the city or she went into the city, we know Boaz intended to do it first thing. He intended to act immediately to deliver Ruth from her destitute state. 
So we see his immediate action that blesses Ruth. When we come to verses 16 and 17, we see Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, begin to inquire into whether or not her plan worked, into whether or not Ruth's identity has been changed as a result of her encounter with the Redeemer. While Boaz heads into the city to resolve the matter of Ruth's redemption, Ruth, too, leaves the threshing floor, and she heads back home to Naomi. Verse 16. When she, Ruth, came to her mother-in-law, she, her mother-in-law, said, How did it go, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her. So just like in chapter 2, when Ruth came back from gleaning in the fields, and Naomi was very curious as to how Ruth was able to stumble into the doorway with 30 pounds of barley grain, just like she was curious then, she is extremely curious now as to how things went the night before. Because as much as that evening, that previous evening, must have been stressful for Ruth, you can believe it must have been stressful for Naomi. Naomi was the one who sent Ruth on that mission. You can imagine her pacing the floor on her knees praying to God for things to work out as she wondered how Ruth was faring. Now, what Naomi asks Ruth when Ruth comes in the door is very interesting. My Bible has her asking how things went. How did it go, my daughter? But you might see a little note in the margin of your Bibles that says her question more literally is, who are you? my daughter. Who are you, my daughter? That seems like a strange thing to ask, doesn't it? Especially when it's clear that Naomi knows who it is. She says, who are you, my daughter? She knows it's Ruth. So why does she ask this question regarding Ruth's identity? What does she mean when she asks, who are you? Well, I want you to notice how Ruth has been identified throughout this true story up until this point. Turn back to chapter 1 and verse 4. In chapter 1, verse 4, Ruth is described as what? A Moabite woman. Then later in chapter 1, verse 22, Ruth is described as Ruth the Moabitess. Naomi's daughter-in-law. Then in chapter 2 and verse 2, Ruth is again identified as the Moabitess. And then in verse 5 of chapter 2, after Ruth arrives in Boaz's field and Boaz himself comes and, and sees her there, do you remember what Boaz asked his servant about this woman? He said in verse 5, Whose young woman is this? Whose young woman is this? What was he wondering? He was wondering who this woman's father was or who this woman's husband was so that he could determine who this woman was. And the servant, in answering Boaz's question, could not answer Boaz in the terms with which Boaz had asked the question. He couldn't mention who her father was or who her husband was because they weren't in the picture. He couldn't identify her by those terms. So what did he say? Chapter 2, verse 6, he said, She is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. Then later in verse 10, 
Notice how Ruth describes herself. She says, Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? And then in verse 13, building off of that self-identification as a foreigner, Ruth distinguishes herself from Boaz's other maidservants because of her foreign identity. She said, I'm not like your other maidservants. And then at the end of chapter 2, verse 21, the narrator again calls Ruth the Moabitess. And after the 10th time, you're thinking, I get it, she's a Moabitess. Why do you keep telling me that? The narrator seems to go out of his way throughout these first two chapters to emphasize the foreignness of this woman. But then when we come to chapter 3 and verse 9, after Naomi sends Ruth to Boaz in the night, as Ruth comes to Boaz, who is their kinsman redeemer, we can sense a transition begin to occur in Ruth's identity. Because what does Boaz ask in verse 9? He asks the exact same question that Naomi asks when she comes back from that encounter. He says, who are you? And there, Boaz obviously doesn't know who this is, and so it's a natural question. Who are you? But in answering his question, Ruth drops the foreigner language, and she simply identifies herself in this way. She says, I am Ruth, your maid. Plain and simple, I am Ruth, your maid. And it's as if she is waiting for Boaz to change her identity from Ruth the Moabitess, who came back with her mother-in-law, to Ruth, the wife of Boaz. In fact, that is the whole reason Naomi sent Ruth to Boaz that night in the first place, so that Ruth could be made Boaz's wife. So when you take into account the context, it makes perfect sense that when Ruth walks through that door that morning, Naomi asks, who are you? You see what she's asking? Who are you? Has your identity changed? Can you be identified by Boaz now, whereas before you could not? She seems to be asking, who are you now? Has your identity been changed? Did my plan work? Is he willing to marry you? And this makes for a striking parallel with our own Christian life, doesn't it? Boaz is what to them? A redeemer to them. And when you, as a believer, when you first came to Jesus Christ, who is our great redeemer, and you came to him in repentance and faith, and you asked Jesus to redeem you, how did you leave that encounter with your risen Savior? Were you, was your identity the same after that as it was before that? No. Did you not leave that encounter with a completely new identity? If you came to me and said, I'm feeling burdened by my sin, I'm afraid I'm headed for hell, I'm under the wrath of God, what do I do? I say, Go talk to the Lord. Go ask for mercy from Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin and trust in him. And if I see you walk and go into the door of a room to be in private, and then you come out of that door, would it not be appropriate for me to say, who are you now? Did you repent and believe? Did you come to Christ? If not, you're the same guy you were when you went in there. If you did, if you did run to Christ in faith, you are different now. Your identity is totally different. No longer 
were you Ruth the foreigner who belongs to no one, but you had become Ruth the bride who belongs to the Redeemer. And the Apostle Paul speaks of this change in our identity when we come to Christ by faith for redemption. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. There, Paul says, he's, he's writing to believers, he's calling them to remember what they were before they believed in Jesus, what they were as pagans or Gentiles. He says, therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, it's another way of calling them unbelievers, you who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, that is, they as non-Jews were viewed as outside the blessed realm of God by Jews. He says, you who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, verse 12, remember that you were at that time, as unbelievers, separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... Now that they've believed in Jesus, now in Christ Jesus, that's a change in identity. They were out of Christ, and now through faith they are in Christ. Now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. So that, he broke down that, that wall of separation, so that in himself he might make the two, Jew and Gentile, into one new man, thus establishing peace. And, verse 16, might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. So you see, before we came to Christ, we were Gentile unbelievers. We used to be separate from Christ. We used to be excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. We used to be strangers to the covenants of promise. We used to be without hope and without God in the world. But now, having believed in Jesus Christ, we are in Christ. We are united to Christ. We have been brought near to God by the blood of Christ, having become reconciled to God through the cross of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a, what? New creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Ruth has just come back from asking the Redeemer to redeem her, and Naomi says, Who are you now? Who are you? And in answer to Naomi's question, Ruth told her all that the man had done for her. Ruth likely explained how Boaz was very willing to marry her, to redeem her, but that first he had to sort out whether or not the other guy, the more closely related redeemer, would decide to act. 
She probably related how Boaz promised to sort that out right away. And then we come to verse 17. Continuing to describe that night, Ruth said, These six measures of barley he gave to me. And then she adds a detail that was not mentioned when we went through the the narrative of Ruth talking to Boaz. She gives us an extra detail here. These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed, or do not go to your mother-in-law empty. And this statement that Boaz makes here, it directs our attention back toward the beginning of this book. Remember in chapter 1, verse 21, what Naomi had said about God. Chapter 1, verse 21, she said, I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Same word as when Boaz said, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty. Naomi, in chapter 1, had viewed God as pouring out of her life all that had filled her with hope. But now, as Boaz is pouring all this grain into Ruth's cloak, it is as though God, through him, their kinsman redeemer, is pouring hope back into Naomi's life. And that seems to be how Naomi takes it. She takes this last act of generosity by Boaz as a sign that he will act. He will bring about their redemption. Their redemption is at hand. Then we come to verse 18, where we see Naomi's confidence in a restless accomplishment. We see her confidence in a restless accomplishment. Read verse 18. After hearing this pledge that Boaz had given to Ruth and to Naomi through this barley that he had poured into her cloak, verse 18, then she said, Wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he has settled it today. Naomi instructs Ruth to just wait. Just wait. Ruth didn't need to do anything other than wait until she knew how the matter of her redemption turned out. Now, when, Ruth, when Naomi says that, she's not calling into question whether or not redemption will come. That's not in question. What is in question is who is the one through whom redemption will come. Because remember back in verse 13, when Boaz said, remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good, let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives. So according to that, there's only two possible outcomes. And, and those are the two, only two possible outcomes Naomi sees here. Either the more closely related redeemer would redeem Ruth, or Boaz himself would redeem Ruth. Either way, Ruth's redemption was going to happen. Ruth had gone to Boaz asking for redemption, and now she did not need to do anything but wait for it. Boaz was going to make it happen. This verse where Naomi tells Ruth to wait and see, it reminded me of when the Israelites had just been delivered from their slavery to Egypt, and they had come to the Red Sea. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 14. 
So the people have been delivered from Egypt and they're walking and they reach the Red Sea. And when they get to the Red Sea, they look behind them only to see the whole Egyptian army, the superpower of the ancient world, bearing down on them to enslave them all over again. And the Israelites saw that they were caught between a rock and a wet place, if you will. They were caught between Pharaoh's army and the Red Sea with nowhere to go, nowhere to hide. Look at uh, chapter 14, verse 10. As Pharaoh drew near, drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But then see Moses' reply in verse 13. He said, But Moses said to the people, Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. Why was it that the Israelites only had to stand by and watch? Why is it that they did not have to fight this battle? Verse 14, the Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Back in Ruth 3, Verse 18, what reason does Naomi give for why Ruth does not need to do anything but wait? What's the reason she gives? She says, for the man will not rest until he has settled it today. Boaz was their kinsman redeemer, and he would accomplish the work of redemption that only he as the committed redeemer could accomplish. All of the doing that needed to be done was resting upon him, the Redeemer. All Ruth was to do was wait for him to act and do what he had said he would do. Now I want to point out something to you. Naomi says that Boaz will not rest until he has settled it today. What is the it that he's going to settle? What is the matter that he is going to settle? It's the matter of her redemption. And the word that Naomi uses for settled, it means to complete or to bring to an end. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, that was the Bible available to the Greek-speaking world in New Testament times. The, the, the Old Testament Hebrew translated into Greek. In the Septuagint, this word for settled in Ruth 3.18 is translated there by, or in the Septuagint, by the Greek word teleo, which means to bring to completion or to finish. And the same word that is used in Ruth 3.18 in the Septuagint is used twice in John 19. Turn over to John's Gospel, chapter 19. John chapter 19. This is the scene of the crucifixion. 
Jesus is, has already been nailed to the cross. John 19, verse 28, it says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished. That word for accomplished, it's teleo, the same word we saw in Ruth 3.18 when, when uh, Naomi said, he will finish it, he will accomplish it. Jesus knew that all things that the scripture had foretold would occur had been accomplished, finished. And then, he, then it says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, to fulfill the scripture, and that word for fulfill, that's a related Greek word. It's not teleo, it's teleao, which means something very similar, basically to finish. He says, it says, to finish the scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, what? What did he say? The last three words he uttered. It is finished. And that word for finished is, again, that Greek word, teleo. It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So do you see the parallel there? In Ruth 3.18, you have Boaz who will not rest until he finishes the matter of Ruth's redemption that day. And then in John 19, you have the greater descendant of Boaz, Jesus, who is the redeemer of all redeemers. You have him not resting, not giving up his spirit until he finished the matter of our redemption, rescuing us from our sins and from the wrath of God. Do you see the, the parallel there? Do you see the foreshadowing of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, in the life of Boaz, who was acting as Ruth's Redeemer? God so providentially ordered the life of Boaz that in the life of Boaz, as we read Ruth, in his life and in his work of redeeming Ruth from her temporal problem, we, seeing that scene play out, we are thereby prepared to see the greater Redeemer come to redeem us from our eternal problem. Like Boaz, but in an infinitely greater way than Boaz, Jesus did not rest until he had settled or finished the matter of our redemption. Just to give you some insight into another of the words that Naomi uses, she says, the man will not rest until he has finished it. That word for rest that Naomi knew Boaz would deny himself until he finished their redemption, that word for rest means just that, to rest. And in other contexts, it can carry the meaning of to be peaceful or quiet or to maintain a quiet attitude or a passive attitude. And the theological word book of the Old Testament says that the basic idea of this word to rest is tranquility. Boaz is denying himself tranquility until he finishes her redemption. That book goes on to describe this word as follows, quote, it implies the absence of strife, war, or trouble on the one hand, and worry or anxiety on the other. It may also imply the absence of a pressing obligation, 
or again of some disturbing element that mars a relationship between individuals, unquote. That's what that word rest means. The absence of strife, the absence of anxiety, the absence of anything that would get in the way of your relationship with someone else. Naomi says, Boaz will deny himself that until he carries out your redemption. Now turn with me to Psalm 22. This is a messianic psalm. We find this psalm speaking of the greater redeemer, the Lord Jesus. Psalm 22, verse 1, we find the words that Jesus takes upon his own lips on the cross when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He goes on to say, Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no what? Rest. I have no rest. Then turn to Isaiah 53. This is the most famous messianic passage talking about how the Messiah would lay down his life to pay for the sins of his people. And all throughout this chapter, Isaiah 53, we see the Messiah doing everything but resting. Isaiah 53, verse 3, he's described as being despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Verse 4, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening or punishment for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Verse 10, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. There's no rest to be found there until the end of that chapter where it talks about the reward of the Messiah for accomplishing our redemption. Then lastly, let's go to Hebrews 5. Hebrews 5, verse 7. This is speaking about Jesus after Jesus, who is God the Son, after he took on flesh to, to accomplish our redemption in this life. Hebrews 5, verse 7 says, In the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him, the source of eternal salvation. You see how Jesus denied himself a life of tranquility. He took upon himself a life of strife and trouble and deep anxiety. Not sinful anxiety, but the anxiety that came from the pain of taking our sin upon himself. The anxiety that came for the dreadful prospect of having to endure his beloved father's wrath in our place. 
You see how this Redeemer's life was dominated by the pressing obligation of going to the cross in order to pay for the sins of his people. Remember as you read through the Gospels, every time somebody tries to kill Jesus and he walks away, what is the reason given for why he's able to just walk away? His what had not yet come. His hour. There was that hour waiting ahead of him from the moment he was born. That obligation rested upon his life for his entire life until the hour came and he laid down his life on the cross. Jesus, our Redeemer, willingly allowed his relationship with his God to be marred by our sin that he took upon himself and for which he suffered and died. Hebrews, or, uh, Isaiah, one of the servant songs in that book, says that he set his face like flint to go and suffer. He kept going, and he did not rest until every scripture had been finished or fulfilled. He did not rest. He did not give himself a moment's peace until the price for our redemption had been fully paid. It was only then after he had finished it, that he cried out, it is finished, and bowed his head and yielded up his spirit. In denying himself rest, in denying himself peace, he became our peace. That's what Paul said in Ephesians 2, verse 14. He said, for he himself is our peace. If you're here this morning and you have not yet come to Jesus Christ for salvation from your sins and from the wrath of God, you need to understand that there is nothing you need to do or can do to save yourself. Just like Ruth, Naomi just said, wait. There was nothing for her to do to accomplish her redemption. As the Redeemer, Jesus has done all that is necessary to accomplish your redemption by dying on the cross in the place of sinners and rising from the dead. Jesus did not rest until he had finished that great work of purchasing salvation for sinners. And now, Jesus offers redemption to you as a gift, eternal life, and the forgiveness of our sins. If you have not put your trust in Christ yet, you need to understand you are, you are headed for an eternal, conscious torment in hell forever. You are headed for a suffering that will far outstrip anything that you could even dream of experiencing in this life. But you don't have to go there. That's the good news. You don't have to go there. Come to Jesus by faith, just like Ruth came to Boaz. Come to Jesus and ask him to have mercy on you. Trust him that he alone did all that was required to save you by his perfect life, his atoning death, and his glorious resurrection. And there is nothing left for you to do but trust in what he has done. Surrender your life to him. He does not fail to redeem a single soul who comes to him for redemption. So trust in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus is our great redeemer. We saw last week how just as Boaz was a willing redeemer, so Jesus is a willing redeemer. And this week we have seen that Jesus did not rest until he accomplished, until he finished 
our redemption. There is a full and free redemption available to all who would turn from their sins and trust in Jesus alone to save them. We thank you that you are such a generous God that you would hold out to us the free gift of eternal life and, and you, all you ask us to do is trust you for it. Turn from sin, let go of our sin that we may lay hold of that because Jesus did it all. He paid it all. He did everything required to give it to us. All there is for us to do is to rest in him. Lord, help us to rest in your son. Help us to abandon all our efforts to, to gain your favor. Help us to rest in what Jesus has done alone, we pray in his name. Amen.